Welcome to the Registered Investment Advisor Podcast, where financial services marketing expert Seth Green interviews experts, executives, and top producers to share can't-miss tips on how they successfully manage their financial service firms, grow their businesses, create great relationships, and influence the industry. And now, here's your host, Greetings, everybody. Today, I am here. I'm really excited about today's podcast. I'm going to be interviewing Alma Johns from Bench Capital Advisory. She specializes in mergers and acquisitions. She has a wealth of knowledge, and I'm really, really looking forward to digging in here. First, I want to, I want to know a little more about you, Alma. I want to tell my viewers about you. Um, how did you get started in the financial services, and what made you, you know, specialize in M&A? Well, in, when you say financial services, I have to go back 30 years ago. I don't look at on Zoom, but I've been around a, a few times around the block. So I started my career at a Japanese subsidiary in the Philippines, um, I would say 30, maybe 30 years ago, I would say. And then I moved to Canada about two and a half decades ago and started working for, you know, uh, in a corporate banking with a Japanese bank. And then since then I, I did my MBA and then came down to commercial because I wanted to build my family. So I went from corporate banking down to commercial banking, um, dealing with what you call small or SME or small and mid-sized uh, companies. So no longer the large Toyota and Honda, but, you know, down into, you know, owner operated businesses. And then 10 years ago, I left the bank. Um, I got a little bit bored and uh, started to venture on my own and kind of have a dream of establishing my own corporate finance. And then subsequently, five years later, I got ushered into the mergers and acquisitions, our M&A world, because of a friend that I met um, down in, in Massachusetts. So it's been fun since then. Uh, there was a little bit of slowdown during COVID, but now we're taking off again. And I want to get the word out there, especially to the Canadian uh, Christian business communities and including the Northeast as well. So New York State, anybody there is more than welcome. Any business right. owner or any potential buyer, um, you can get in touch with me. We will provide the information later on. That is great. Now, you're president of Bench Capital. Tell me, yes. tell me about your role. Tell, tell me, give me an example of your day to day and tell me about how you evaluate businesses that, that come to you guys. Give me your methodology. Yeah. So first of all, um, I do a lot of business development and marketing. I do have a back office that helped me market. And I do have a back office that helps me with a financial analysis and preparing information about the companies that are going to market. But my day primarily involves uh, talking to business owners. It could be a CEO, a founder. Um, it could be a president of a company. They come in so many different forms. But my ideal target clients really are, you know, business owners that are looking to retire. And typically they're in their maybe early 60s to mid 70s or late 70s. That's the core of my clients. And uh, say, for example, a typical profile of a business owner would be somebody who either founded the company 30 years ago or maybe inherited it from his father or mother or, or father-in-law. And then 
they run this business for say 25 to 35 years and then now they're looking at a retirement and uh, so I basically meet them find out more about their business understand what motivates them to retire because some of them even though they're in their 60s they tend to hold on to the business a little bit longer but then there's a lot of you know issues we don't want the issue to come before uh, they start selling the business because what happens is you don't want to fire sell the fire sell the business you don't want to get into that position so it takes years of planning before you get there and if you don't plan ahead of time then there's other ways that we really have to kind of strategize on how to go to market to make your your business um uh sellable but okay. uh anyways so you you have a background in corporate banking at uh at mufg how does that did that uh help you hone your skills for the mna absolutely so a lot of the MA practitioners right now are either former investment bankers or commercial bankers okay. or corporate bankers. Some of them have legal background. Uh, they were, say, for example, working for a law firm as a corporate um, lawyer. Some of them are accountants. Some of them were business owners. And the thing is, you, you shouldn't be getting into the MA business unless you have a solid background, whether you're, you know, looking at, you've looked at companies from the trenches or you've looked at companies from outside in and outside in being uh, a trusted advisor, like an accountant, a lawyer, or a banker, some, somebody that has that background dealing with, um, you know, dealing with uh, business owners in the past Mm -hmm. and then able to transport, or I would say, you know, how to call it the terminal? Yeah, I forgot. But anyway, you're you're able to transport that knowledge from your previous role into okay. the role of an MA advisor. And three things about you know characteristics of an MA advisor. Number one, okay. you're a psychologist. Number two, you're a um, a technical person. And number three, you're a salesperson. I mean, yeah. not necessarily in that order, but those three is almost like one third, one third, one third of what makes up a great m advisor. You have to have those three elements. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do your job well. Wonderful. And you have over 20 years of experience evaluating businesses for institutional funding. and uh, Yes. You yes, managed, I uh, have. 1.6 billion in credit facilities, RBC? Probably more. That was my wow. last role. But, you know, in that span of, say, two and a half decades of constantly looking, reading financial statements, talking to business owners, talking to, you know, credit approvers, like what we call in the banking community adjudicators, it re- really gives you an insight into how businesses are operated. And, yeah, it, it really is very helpful because without that background, you're not able to, you know, gauge a business if it's sellable within, say, less than 30 minutes. So you have to be okay. able to talk to the business owners, look at the financial statements and, you know, be able to come to a conclusion. That, yeah, this is a sellable business. No, this is a sellable business. And you have to wait for a little bit before you actually go to market. Okay. And then you publish articles in Profit Guide, Canadian Business. Canadian metalworking. Give me a couple of key takeaways from those articles that my audience is going to love to hear. Okay, so uh, wow, there's so many numerous points, but I think the most important thing is preparedness 
whether it's from an operational standpoint or from an emotional standpoint. Now, from an operational standpoint, if you're thinking of selling your business, think like years, like say, for example, three to five years. So what do you want the outcome to be? How much money do you need in order to retire? So let's just pick a magic number. Let's just say that you need $5 million. So $5 million will get you retired at say age of 65 or 70 years old because business owners are very hardworking. They get bored after a while, so they have to get to a certain age. So preparedness is very important because there's tax considerations, there's legal considerations, and then there's also that that EBITDA or or how do you call this, valuation consideration because you can't get to that valuation unless you're prepared. Like say, for example, your business is doing $250,000, but you want to retire with $5 million. That's not possible. In order for you to get to that $5 million, you have to get to that $1 million mark, which takes you to you know $1 million mark multiplied by five times of your EBITDA, then you can get the $5 million valuation. And when I say $1 million mark, that's equivalent to your earnings before income tax, depreciation and amortization or EBITDA, not the revenue. So in order to get there, what is your EBITDA margin? So that would probably entail on a $1 million EBITDA, you could be doing $5 million and up in sales. So again, depending on your target, if you want to, if you can retire with a $1 million, that's perfectly fine. If you want to go to the 5 million and 10 million, you probably have to work a little bit harder. So, you know, different businesses come in different sizes and different comfort level and the size of dreams of, of the owners. Some business people are not satisfied with a 5 million retirement. They might want to be, how do you call this? Get involved in philanthropy and want to get to a hundred million dollars. So they might have to work harder or wait a little bit, you know, later to retire. So different people, different objectives. And then, uh, so I said preparedness. And then I think the other thing is emotional preparedness. If you are a person that don't have hobbies, maybe take on something else and really think, what am I going to do if I retire two years from now? Because if you get bored, you might end up going back (laughs) or last minute, throughout that M&A process that you've been working on for several months, you kind of have a cold feet, which is not good for you because there's there's some legal implications there. So right. I think those are the most important. Get your okay. docs in a row, have your records and financial statements and everything else, any systems and procedures. And the other thing that's important in part of that preparedness is make sure that if you walk away from the business for say, one month or two months or three months, the business does not fall apart. The business is not dependent upon you because you have your second in command, you have your third in command, and you got your org structure um, properly done. Now, do you jump in and assist and make sure all of that's in place? And I, I can see your passion for it, and that's wonderful. So tell me about your strategies and then give me a success story. Yeah, so there's... um. I would say a success story would be, I think my youngest client was 58 years old. And I think that the most successful part of the story there is he was able to build a business from, you know, zero into say a $10 million business. 
let's just you know pick a number out there. I'm not, I'm not able to disclose anything. And then yeah. he has you know salesperson salespeople across the country. He has you know managers in place that if he actually leaves the business, like say take a vacation, he's able to take a vacation. But it's not always the best scenario. And he also has a very special product that was valuable to whatever industry he's serving. So the other thing, again, preparedness is to have that very strong key differentiator that you're not a commodity. And if you do are, if you are a commodity, you create something that's what you call core competencies that clients will remember you or your customers will remember you and keep going back to you as a service provider or a, a products provider versus somebody else. So yeah, so that was one of my success stories. And I can't disclose a lot because, you know, that's okay. so a lot of those are sensitive information. But we were able to sell that business for 20% premium over what, you know, a typical buyers would offer just because I'm there sure was that. Was that happy client. Yeah. I'm sure there was a happy client. And, and I mean, there's obviously things that set you and your group apart from, I don't want to use your run of the mill MA advisory firm, but. Um, what are the core competencies of, of you, you and your firm that set you apart? No yeah. So again, you know, I, you can't preach to to other people and not have that core competency itself. I think, um, and which in my case could be a double-edged sword, the customer service here that we provide is top of the line and everybody says, oh yeah, we got great customer service. And to me being responsive and being available to your client when especially in when you're in that process where you become very very emotional you have to be able to listen to your client when they you know ask you questions or sometimes they have this uncertainties and a feeling of my goodness I'm, I'm not ready um you have to be able to listen that's one thing and okay there are some M&A advisors out there that are willing to listen, but, you know, some clients would just like to have somebody to hear them out and talk. So for us, it's that level of white glove. We call it a white glove service. And then the other thing that we pride ourselves is the quality of information that we put out there. We have had a lot of really great positive feedback because for the companies, for our size of target of companies, some would just simply put together like a five to 10 pages and put it out there. Some are sort of back in the napkin, napkin kind of M&A advisors. But for us, we pride ourselves in the quality of information that we put out. It's got all, you know, company overview. It's got industry study. It's got like top 10 customers, for example. It's got graphs of where the, you know, where the locations sorry where the stores or retails if it's a retail store or whether it's a head office or whatnot it's got a location how far is it from buffalo <laughs> you know something like that <laughs> so that it allows the buyer to envision what the periphery of their immediate you know geographic location and then it would highlight the company's key differentiators what makes them unique we always have that several points. Some clients have five points. Some clients have 10 points of what is their strongest suite that will allow them to be very successful once a buyer takes over the business, something like that. So a couple of things, I think the most important thing is we have the knowledge and experience dealing with 
business owners because of my background uh, and then quality of materials that we put out there and that white glove um, like service that. that we provide. Being accessible to the client when they need you is, is very, very critical. Okay. Tell me about awards and recognitions and, uh, and you know, industry affiliations. Um, well, industry affiliations, um, I wouldn't say that we have a lot. I've been a member of the Canadian Christian Business Federation for quite some time, and I attend the meetings from time to time. Um, I'm connected to some of the people there. There are some Canadian Christian businesses that we're affiliated in. I'm also part of the M&A Club. Uh, which is very, very active. I'm co-president of the York Region uh, chapter of the M&A Club. So it's just a gathering of M&A advisors and deal makers. We call ourselves deal makers. So we're in touch and have our pulse on what is happening in the market. So there's a, we meet on, right now we meet on a weekly basis just because of, of, um, you know, the event that we're preparing for, but we meet regularly. It could be once a month, twice a month, just to you know exchange information find out what's happening out there and that club has lawyers accountants bankers other service providers obviously some buying groups like private equity family offices because that's our market for selling our our companies to so yeah so that's part of and and, you know there's also other memberships with with organizations that you know like i was a member of the ontario uh, association, sorry, Ontario Aerospace Council, because I have a lot of clients in aerospace and defense. Oh, okay. So. Now, you, you mentioned uh, the Canadian Christian Business Association. So tell me how... how Business Federation. Beliefs, Business Federation. How do your Christian beliefs uh, affect the way you do business? And like, for instance, the way you select a client? Yeah, so the way we select a client, um, I would say all my my clients are not necessarily Christian. Some of them are Catholic. Right. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are <clears throat> believers, but mm-hmm. I don't preclude non-Christian uh, business right. owners. But I think the most important thing is to be able to, I would say that when you have that background, you have that faith background, it increases your credibility that you're not going to do something terrible to the people that you're dealing with, that you will always act in integrity. And that integrity is not because of your reputation, but it's more like faith-based. Like you have that embedded in your DNA that you're a Christian and you're not supposed to do that, right? (laughs) The golden rule is going to be there all the time. And, And sometimes, you know, some people criticize me as being soft, but being soft is not always a disadvantage. Obviously, you're going to negotiate for your client and advocate for them as much as you possibly can, because after all, you're serving that client's interest. But you have to be able to meet halfway through and have that reasonableness on both sides. Like, yeah, you represent the, the seller, but you also have to be considerate with a buyer. But after all, they're the ones that writing the check, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, that level of integrity that comes with being uh, a follower of Jesus is very critical. And I don't want to, you know, make that as a selling point there. Right. I don't want to, you know, market it too much. I don't want to sound like, you know, we're virtue signaling, but it's integral to me as a human being, as a person, sure. uh, that you're able to have that hang in the background that if you do something, oh, that little voice, and it's not 
like for some people they call it conscience but for us we call it like the holy spirit is telling you don't do that you know right. but right. a little too far then you you backtrack again and even right. if you attempt to do something wrong which i don't you know but sometimes you know we're in here inherently sinful sinful in nature you just have that feeling or some nagging in your right. in your some voice in your mind that tells it's oh maybe you've got a little too far you know absolutely and then you back on track again tell me about your approach at building maintaining relationships with your clients uh, and and even industry partners as well um how's that contributed to your success um you know m a just like any trusted advisory practice is all about trust and you really have to develop that trust with the client uh, number one, that you're going to do what you want to do. And if you fail, say, for example, you have a deliverable. Okay, I'll, I'll get it to you, say, Wednesday next week. And then Monday and Tuesday, you had emergency meeting with another client and you can't get that done. So uh, you, you call that person, you call that client and apologize. I am sorry I was on the road yesterday. I know I was. I said I was going to deliver it to you by 12 o'clock. Can you give me a couple of hours? My analyst and I will, will crunch the numbers and get it to you, you know, at two o'clock, say, for example, because things happen. And more mm-hmm. often than not, your client will understand because they too have been in similar situations, if not, you know, regularly sometimes it's it's an everyday situation for them that you really have to be adaptable and that's just the age that we're you know I think that's just the environment right now that we get we can get called into something that's you know more of an emergency you know sometimes I do sometimes question myself oh my goodness did I just lose my integrity but if you communicate 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 and assure them that things are going to get done they're typically forgiving and it doesn't happen all the time obviously and also like say christmas you send them a a card or some some people you send a gift to so that's part of not buying their attention but just continuing to let them know that yes i'm here i'm still here you know uh reminding them that you're still around and even though when you close a transaction obviously you're gonna have to really continue to communicate with that client because you never know when they're going to do their next deal. And I do have a client like that, that still asks me for, you know, everything like, Oh, I need money from the bank. Can you help me? You know, I sold my other business. I need help from the bank or um, my line of credit is only a million dollars. And I want to get like $2 million more because we're in our growth mode right now. So there's those situations that, you know, you should be ready to help. And, and it's good. It's it's a relationship business, and uh, most are. And uh, it is relationship a relationship have, business, um, both kind of with the buyers and the sellers and your service providers. Mm-hmm. And we do referrals. I do refer clients too. Like if I know something that might add value to somebody, even if it's not okay. directly a client, you just kind of think about it. You know, I have a mentor as well, and my mentor, you know, we're not. It's not purely a business relationship. It's more like you know, he's mentoring me and, and we meet from time to time. But if I think about something that might help him, then I would send, Hey, look at this email or look at this newspaper article or look what this guy's doing in this industry. And uh, it's uh, you become top of mind of somebody, right? Now you, you mentioned the mentor. So I want to give you an opportunity to mini mentor right now. 
if you could speak to a person out of college that's thinking about getting into M&A, what advice would you give them? Yes, uh, a couple of things I would say, and I do mentor a lot of those students. Um, you know, in, in Toronto, we have a hockey team called the Maple Leafs and there's the Marlies. Uh, yeah. Marlies is the farm team, right? So right. I always think of our company as a Marlies for M&A or corporate finance people want to be. And mm -hmm. I hire a lot of interns. And I know sometimes, yeah, you do use their skill, their financial ability to, to crunch numbers, but sometimes they don't look beyond that. There's, you know, that's just 10% of the job, 20% of the job, and 80% of the job is something that yeah. you will never learn at school. So I train them, I give them live deals. Obviously, there's a confidentiality agreement that we sign with each of those interns, but they move on to become investment bankers with capital markets. I have a really, really great um, kid that I, I hired when he was still in the second year and did phenomenally well after he left. But going back to the, the advice, uh, number one, really, really work on your skills. But in saying that, it's not just what you learn at school, but try to get yourself like an internship for companies like ours and get your feet wet there because you're going to learn a ton more than you will ever, ever learn in your like year one or year two program in either MBA or, or your BBA. And then the other thing is network, network, network. If you want to apply for an internship, do not throw like applications on LinkedIn or send a barrage of email, go out to networking events, find them. Find them where they are and just meet a ton of people because your next job could be from that networking event, not from, you know, how many hundreds of, of uh, resumes you throw out there on, on LinkedIn. So those are my two advice. Build your no. skills, your financial skills, and then network. So that will set you for life. That is great advice. And now, Build the are there specific industries or, or preferable industries that you have or the firm has that, you know, that you really enjoy working with more than others? Um, I really enjoy working on the industrial side because like anything that's sort of metal related, just because that industry is never going to go away in even a hundred years, it's not something that you can't replace. It's there's that tangibility to it that it will okay. never go away. It, you know, anything that's sort of bricks and mortar or physical will not be replaced by, uh, I'm not going to say never, but maybe certain aspects of it will be replaced by AI, but maybe the building of it will be replaced by AI to some degree. But a building is a building that physical tangibility will never be, will never go away. So anything that's sort of metal related, anything that's sort of building materials related, I like. And I also like the healthcare industry because in Canada, we're a government funded um, yes. healthcare system. So there's that level of stability, recurring income. I like those things and a few others. I don't typically deal with maybe hospitality or, or like very, very much IT related that is very, very technical that I can't okay. grasp myself. So it has to be something that I understand. So if I, you know, I'm presented with information and I don't understand it, I'd rather hand it over to somebody that 
perhaps that specialty in that specific industry, just to be more candid. So, okay. yeah. Now, wealth of information. I, this is this is great. I want you to tell my readers, readers, listeners, and viewers um, how they reach you. How do they get in contact with you? If they have a business they want to sell, buy, they're interested in some something relative to M&A, how do they reach Madam Alma Johns? Yeah, so they can reach me at alma.johns at benchcapital.ca. Uh, that's my email. I'm not sure if I should give my number out here, but I'm also available at LinkedIn. I don't know what my LinkedIn handle is, but if you type Alma Johns yeah. Bench Capital, that, I will like to pop met. off on the screen. <laughs> that's how we connected on LinkedIn. Yes. So, I, I mean, best way to reach me is either email or LinkedIn because LinkedIn is always on. I may not necessarily be working on it or be right. in it, but it's right. always on on my screen, like all the okay. time. So okay. I can be reached there as well. And right now, are you guys looking for any particular uh, type of merger or acquisition? Are you uh, actively searching out uh, a particular kind of client right now? Right now, we have a mandate. You know, we have a sell side mandates, but those I can handle myself. But if there's anybody out there that is in the HVAC or HVAC industry, anything that's sort of mechanical, we have a mandate that I expect to come up next week. So if there's an owner of a mechanical, whether it's plumbing or HVAC business, that's probably doing any anywhere from, you know, $3 million to say 10 or $20 million dollars please reach out because we have this mandate that, you know, going to come very, very soon. That's for now, but we're always okay. open to any, any industry or even any advice. I mean, if a seller or owner wants to reach out, be more than happy to give some advice on a non-committed basis. I'm not going to say, Hey, I gave you an hour or two of my time sell with me. It's not that. I mean, if it will benefit another advisor, all the best, we're all frenemies, you know, we compete with each other. Friends and enemies, you know, we compete with each other, but it's a very, very collaborative environment. Okay. We don't <laughs> we don't compete in a in a bad way. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. So listen, I wanna thank you for your time today. And um I want to tell my my uh, listeners and viewers, this has been Carl McKinney co-hosting with Seth Green on the RIA podcast. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to speak with Alma Johns from Bench Capital Advisors in Toronto, Canada. Um, any final, you want to give us your contact information once again, uh, Alma? Yeah, so it's alma.johns at benchcapital.ca. CA is Canada, by the way. And then uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Just type Alma Johns and then perhaps bench capital, and then you can reach me there. And by the way, Carl, thank you so much for your time. Um, My pleasure. This has been uh, quite a very insightful conversation. So hopefully we can get together again and I'd be more than happy to send some people your way. Absolutely. Thank you and have a great day. You too, Carl. 49 faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon bestselling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast. 
at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.